Now I'm going to look at a meta-narrative of judgment. And uh, I'm also going to use this to be illustrative of uh, a greater thought, and that is tonight we consider the importance of understanding the meta-narrative, which simply means big story, and informing theology, which is previous doctrinal teachings for the interpretation of the scriptures. I know that you have heard that in order to rightly understand the scriptures, we need to understand them in context. And uh, usually we think of the immediate context, and that is extremely important, that we understand the immediate context of scripture. But not only do we need to interpret scripture in their immediate context, but we need to interpret scripture in its overall context, which is the entirety of the scriptures. That uh, whatever our understanding of the scriptures are, they have to fit in with our general overarching uh, understanding of the scriptures. And one reason why that's important to keep in mind is I find that when people want to study the scriptures in depth, they have a tendency to start with a verse and then to try to work their way out from that particular verse. Um, I would submit to you that that's the easiest approach, but it really isn't the best approach. The best approach would be to start with the big picture and work your way down to the individual verse, continuing to peel away the onion skin. Now, the difficulty with that, of course, is it's extremely hard to do, because then you have to know the whole Bible. Uh, But that is why I continually encourage you to read the Bible through in a year, so that you get familiar with the overall teaching of the Scriptures. And if you know the the big picture and know the overall teaching of the Scripture, then the individual verses are going to fall into line. And you're going to be easily kept from some very common misunderstandings of Scripture because people focus on the one verse and they don't focus on the overall teaching of Scripture. So I'm going to look at a verse tonight and uh, illustrate and also uh, hope that it will prove to be helpful as we talk about judgment. So the verse that we're going to be considering tonight is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. It is common for people to use this verse as a proof text for the idea that the reason that Christ has not yet returned is because he is not willing for a single human being to perish in judgment. This verse is often used to say that God (laughs) wants... (laughs) every single person to be saved. In the context, it's answering the question, why hasn't Christ returned yet? And the answer is, for he is not slow to fill his promise to some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Second paragraph down. There are many who deny that there will be any judgment in the future, and certainly no hell, for God is too loving for that to happen. So theme, tonight we're going to consider the meta-narrative of judgment, the big picture, the overarching teaching of Scripture about judgment, how the individual narratives, stories of judgment, fit into the bigger meta-narrative story and provide an informing doctrine of judgment. So I'm using 2 Peter 3 as our base tonight and uh, looking at the overarching teaching of Scripture uh, out of Second Peter chapter 3 and uh, 1 and following. So number one, it is normative that a mocking of the truth 
and consequently a mocking of the messenger of the truth precedes judgment. God has given us promises concerning the Lord's return. 2 Peter 3, 4. Where is the promise of his coming? In the context, that's the particular promise that's being considered. Uh, the promise that Jesus Christ is coming back. The verses that precede that say this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. It's important to understand that when the Lord returns, it will be accompanied by a series of judgments. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now there, as I said, a series of judgments. These judgments come uh, quite a bit of time after the Lord's return, but these judgments are inaugurated, and there are going to be specific judgments that occur uh, right when Jesus returns, and they continue on and build until you have this destruction of the heaven and earth as we know it, and a, uh, a re- uh, establishment of a new heaven and new earth. B, it is normative that people reject the warning of coming judgment and that God's message and God's messenger are mocked. 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Lot was mocked even by his sons-in-law, when he proclaimed the coming judgment upon Sodom. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Jesus, of course, was mocked and ridiculed. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. These individual stories of mocking fit into a great story, meta-narrative of mocking and judgment. We see continually in the scriptures that when you speak about judgment, that people are going to ridicule, make fun, uh, deny that the fact there is any such thing as judgment, and the people who proclaim it are going to be ridiculed and mocked as well. Number two, it is normative that fallen mankind rejects the lessons of previous judgments. Fallen mankind fails to see God's intervention in past judgments. 2 Peter 3, 4, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they're saying nothing is new under the sun. Everything is continuing on just as it has from the very first day of creation. Number one, fallen mankind closes their eyes to the truths that are revealed in past judgments. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Fallen mankind fails to learn the lesson of the flood. All things did not continue the same from the beginning of time. God brought judgment in the past. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through water and by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay? So 
we can see, and that's just one example that's given to us in Second Peter, we can see Sodom and Gomorrah, we can look at periods of time in which God intervened, which God did a miraculous work. We certainly can look at the judgments that came upon Egypt in the uh, Exodus, uh, the uh, plagues that came upon Egypt. Everything hasn't continued as it was from the beginning of creation. But God repeatedly has entered into judgment with the world. B, we must not lose sight that judgment is often a long time in coming. Second Peter 3, 4, they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. With the Lord, this isn't a long time. Okay, and when you think about eternity, uh, this is a, quite a bit of, uh, not quite a bit of time at all. It says, with the Lord, one day is with a thousand years. It's not that long. Number three, the re reason that judgment is slow and a long time in coming is because God is waiting for the last elect person to be saved before he brings judgment. A, the Lord is not negligent nor to be faulted, for not yet returning in judgment. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. This word for slow actually means to be a, a slackard, to be lazy. Uh, God is not negligent in keeping his promise. Uh, God isn't forgetting about his promise, and somebody has to wake him up and say, uh, remember you said you're coming back. Uh, why haven't you come back yet? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said I'll come back. I'm coming back. Uh, no, there's no fault, uh, no negligence on the part of God for not yet returning. B, positively, the Lord is delaying judgment for the sake of the elect. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now, that's important. He's being patient toward the elect. If you read the beginning of uh, Peter, uh, it's addressed to the elect. God does not want any of the elect to perish in judgment, not wishing that any should perish. But the, the, that is describing the you, all right? The patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. So he's talking about the elect here. D, God is waiting for the last elect person to be delivered before judgment comes. But that all should reach repentance. The all, again, is the you. All right? So it's referring to the elect people. Judgment indeed is coming. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What I'm going to do now is demonstrate from the scriptures the consistency of what I have just told you about the interpretation of this particular passage. You can look at this passage, look at it grammatically, and you would reach the conclusion that I just reached. But now I want to show you how, if you look at the meta-narrative of scripture, it's the only conclusion you can reach. All right? the, the idea that he is not willing that any single person would perish 
And so that's why he's waiting. Just, just doesn't fit with what Scripture teaches. So that's where we're going now. Number four. We're to learn that God is extremely patient in judgment in order to preserve his elect alive. In the narratives or stories of judgment, it is consistently true that God is patient in waiting for the elect, not the unregenerate, to be delivered before judgment comes. So what he is waiting for is the elect. He's not waiting for the non-elect. A. We're to learn that in the time of the flood, God was patient in sending the flood in order to preserve Noah and his family from destruction. Now, I'm just using 1 Peter here. So we've been looking at 2 Peter. Now we are moving out into a larger context, and we look at 1 Peter. But notice what 1 Peter says, verses 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. Number one, God's patience in bringing judgment upon the world was extended to Noah and his family, not to the world. Because they formally did not obey when God's patience was waited in the days of Noah. So here is this theme about God's patience. And it tells us that God was patient in the time of Noah. But how was that patience manifested? How was it demonstrated? How was it shown? In what way was God patient in the days of Noah? Notice number two. God's patience in bringing judgment upon the world was manifested in his waiting for the ark to be completed before the floodwaters came. Because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God was patient for he was waiting for the judgment to occur for the ark to be completed. When the ark was completed and Noah was safely inside, then the flood waters came. Notice uh, B. Uh, well, let me go back to verse 20 of 1 Peter 3.20. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So here again, it's showing us God's patience when it says that he is not willing that any should perish, he's waiting for just eight people. He's going to destroy the entire earth. But before he does, he's going to wait until that ark is built and for eight people to be delivered. B. We're to learn that God was patient with Lot and his family before God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 2 Peter 2.6, this is the example that this passage uses itself. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So he waited and rescued just Lot and his daughters. Number one. The angels were patient in warning Lot to leave the city. As morning dawned, okay, so if you know the story, you know that the day before, the angels have told 
Lot that the city is going to be destroyed and he needs to get out of the city and he needs to get out fast. Well, Lot goes around that night and tells the future husbands, those that have been uh, entrothed to his daughters, that judgment is coming and they need to get out of the city. We already read that they just viewed him as mocking and joking and they didn't take him seriously. Well, now it's the next day. Verse 15, as the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Get out of here. And they're urging him. They are, they are provoking him. They are saying, Lot, get out, or you're going to get destroyed with this city. Number two, God was patient with Lot while he dilly-dallied in leaving the city. But he lingered. Okay? He didn't want to go. He liked the city. He didn't want to be leaving the city. Didn't want to be leaving these people behind. And so he hung around. He lingered. Number three. So God in his patience actually had the angels grab the hands of Lot, his wife and daughters, and take them out of the city of Gomorrah before it was destroyed. So A, the angels grabbed the hands of Lot and his family. But he lingered. So, okay, the so is as a result of their lingering. Because they were lingering, because he said, hurry up, get out of here, and they weren't following the urging, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. So it means that they forcibly grabbed him. Okay? They weren't just holding hands. He forcibly grabbed them and was conducting them out of the city. Okay? That they're going kicking and screaming. Okay? But, but they're going. Okay? Because they needed to get out of the city or they're going to be destroyed. This was exceedingly gracious and patient on the part of God. For notice what Genesis 19.16 says. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, the, the Lord being compassionate, the Lord being gracious, the Lord being patient. Okay, He was putting up with a lot, but he was going to get them out of the city. Lot was, in fact, delivered from the city. Uh, but he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him in the city, set him outside the city. So they brought him out. And then we read this. It says, they sent him out of the city. It appears that the angels at some point actually picked Lot up and carried him out of the city. That's why I say he went kicking and streaming, uh, screaming. There are 65 different Hebrew words translated as set. And when it says they set him out of the city, this word means to set or lay a thing down. So, at some point, they actually pick him up and carry him out of the city because he's not walking fast enough. Number four, it was not until Lot was out and safely far away from the city that God would bring judgment upon Sodom. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. 
Lot does not want to go to the hills, however. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Okay? I can't live out there. I'm a city dweller. <laughs> I don't want to be in the mountains. B, Lot wants to flee to a small, not too distant city and ask that for his sake that city be spared. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Meaning, well, it's not as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> That's a wicked place, but this is just a little city. Let me go there. I don't want to go to the mountains. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. God, in his patience, grants Lot's request. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also. All right, all right. You can go to this little city. That I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Okay, I'll spare it for your sake. D. Judgment would only come after Lot safely reached the small city. Verse 22 of Genesis 19. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Okay, I can't bring judgment until you're safe. I'm going to destroy this city. I said I'm going to destroy this city. I said it time and time again. I'm going to destroy this city. And I've been patient. <laughs> I've been waiting for you. I told you to get out. I had the angels grab you by the hand. I had an angel pick you up and carry you out. And then you don't want to go to the mountains. You want to go to the small city. But God says, through this angel, I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord raised, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It is after Lot and his daughters are safely out of the city that God brings judgment. Five. We're to learn from past judgments that God is indeed willing to bring judgment to the masses, even to the entire world. Okay, so this idea that God is not willing that any single person would perish, therefore he hasn't come back yet, doesn't fit at all with the entirety of Scripture. Okay? A, there is no safety in position in being spared from God's judgment. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, the angels are more important than we are. They are on a higher plane than we are. The book of Hebrews says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? You made him a little lower than the angels. Okay, so here are the angels, here we are. God didn't spare the angels, who are more important than we are. If God didn't spare the angels, why would we think that he would spare us? Two, God did not even spare his own son from judgment. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all things? Okay, so this idea that people are too important, well, he didn't even spare his own son. This also flies in the face of the idea 
that God in the New Testament is a different kind of God than the God of the Old Testament. It is thought by some that in the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. It is then thought in the New Testament God is a God of love. In fact, so loving that he could not bring himself to condemn anyone. Well, just a reminder that we had a voice from heaven, from God, when Jesus was baptized that said this, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But he didn't spare his son from wrath. If he isn't going to spare his son, why would we think that he is, he is not willing to bring judgment upon a fallen people? It just doesn't fly with the overall tenor of Scripture. Three, God will not spare rulers, powerful individuals, or wealthy individuals, or the poor and the needy from judgment. Now we're in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the final judgment. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And the answer is no one. But when we think about judgment, we are rather accustomed to somehow powerful and wealthy individuals get off. They can use their power, they can use their authority, they can use their wealth, and somehow they beat the system. And oftentimes that's the case, unfortunately. But not with God's judgment. All the wealth, all the power, you can be a king, it's not going to matter. When God brings judgment, that judgment is going to come upon those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But conversely, it's not just the rich and the powerful, but notice also in verse 15, everyone, slaves and free. So it's not just the rich and the powerful, but includes the slaves, includes the poor. Uh, in our day and age, we have a tendency to want to wink at the poor or the needy and let them off in a sense of mercy or graciousness or whatever the case may be. But the scripture says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, if you don't know Christ, you're going to experience judgment. D. Here's the thing to really keep in mind and which is consistent with our passage. There is no safety in numbers resulting in being spared from God's judgment. During the financial crisis, we heard of financial institutions that were too big to fail. Right? Everybody heard that term? Too big to fail. That did not mean that they were so large that they were necessarily financially solvent and impervious to losses. It meant that if they were allowed to fail or go bankrupt, they would bring too many other people and institutions down with them. Therefore, they had to be propped up. Okay? These institutions, if they were allowed to go under, they were going to just suck a whole bunch of people with them. Therefore, it was just too big to fail. The government had to intervene, or the whole economy would have become chaotic. God is willing to bring judgment upon large numbers of people. 
To say that he is not willing that any single person would perish just doesn't fit what the Bible teaches. Number one, God was willing in the past to bring judgment upon entire cities. 2 Peter 2.6 If turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It says, this is an example. Here's an illustration. Look at it. God was willing to destroy entire cities. Three people were spared. And all of the other people in these cities were annihilated. Number two, God was willing in the past to bring judgment upon the entire human race. 2 Peter 2.5 If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. Those are seven other family members. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. First Peter 3.20 Because they formerly did not, did not obey, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, think about this for a moment. This is saying that in the time of the flood, every single human being on the face of this earth was destroyed except for eight people. Think about that. Eight people spared. Everybody else was lost. Put that in context. Think about that for a moment. Think about that when you read the verse that says, He is not willing that any of you should perish. He's talking about the elect. He is not willing that one elect person will perish. He always provides a way of escape for his people, even when they are in the incredible minority. Incredible minority. Number six. When Jesus returns, it will initiate a series of final judgments. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away like a, with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Conclusion. The point of Second Peter is that the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet returned is that because when he returns, judgment will occur. Judgment will not occur until the last elect person is saved. When that occurs, Jesus will return and judge the world. That is the point of Second Peter. Why hasn't he come back yet? Where is the promise of his coming? He is patient towards you. He's waiting for that last elect person to be saved. And when that last elect person is saved, he's coming. Just like when Noah entered the ark, he's coming. When Lot and his daughters are safely out of the city, the judgment is coming. When the last elect person is saved, judgment is coming to this earth. <clears throat> if the narratives 
stories are not true, but are just moralistic stories to try and get us to live better lives. And I, I'm summing up what, and building off of what I said last week. So if you weren't here, I, I apologize. But then there is no reason to fear the greater judgment that is yet to come. It too becomes a moralistic narrative that we all know is not true, but just intended to scare us into living better lives. In other words, if Sodom and Gomorrah is not true, if the, if the flood is not true, then it's not true that he's coming back either. All right? These are just stories. But if they are true, then it is true that he's coming back. And these stories have great illustrative import. And they teach us reality, of the way things really are. If the Bible is not true in its parts, it cannot be true in its whole. So these individual stories need to be true if the overall message is true. And if the overall message is true, then these individual stories need to be true. But they are. But they are. And we need to understand them in the reality of their truthfulness. So my point tonight was to look at 2 Peter and say to you, all right, uh, you can be spared from a lot of false interpretations of Scripture simply by looking at the overall teaching of Scripture. And you soon find that that application just makes no sense. Okay. First of all, it makes no sense logically. If the reason that Christ hasn't returned yet is because he's not willing that any single person on the face of this earth perishes, when's he coming back? Never. Okay? It can't mean that. It's got to be referring to the elect. And it is consistent in understanding the passage that way. That's how God has handled judgment consistently in the past, and that's how he's going to handle judgment in the future. It's seeing the big picture that sheds light on the individual verses of Scripture. That's why we have to know the entire Bible, why we have to read it through time and time again so that we understand the big picture, and then the little picture comes alive. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, it's never a pleasant thing to think about judgment, but we are grateful, O God, that you have promised to spare your people. We are thankful that if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, that we are going to be spared from your judgment as you have always spared your people. Thank you for the patience that you demonstrate, the way in which you are waiting for that last individual to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your patience with Noah in building the ark. Thank you for your patience with Lot in his leaving the city. Thank you for your patience with us. Many of us heard the gospel numerous times before we accepted the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with your elect. And uh, Lord, may we not get to be numbered with the scoffers that say, where is the promise of his coming? But let us understand, O God, your great patience. And may we look forward to that day, hastening unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that hastening is to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when that last person repents, you will come. So, O God, we say, even with John in the book of Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus.
For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed. Sorry I talked so fast. I had so much. I always worried I'm not going to get done. I had 10 minutes. So take care.